Welcome to Texas True Crime. I'm your host, Jessica. I'm so glad you're here with me today. I had the best weekend. We didn't really do much. We just kind of hung around, went to the Dearlies for a little while, and relaxed. But it was nice to not have a lot to do so that I am actually refreshed and ready for the week ahead. I hope you all had a great weekend and that you're ready for your week ahead also. I have some fun and exciting news. I'm going to be sitting in on an episode of Crimes, Killers, Cults, and Beer. So as soon as I know when that episode is going to be available, I will let you all know so that you can tune in and listen. And then hopefully, not only will you get to hear an extra episode with me, but you will find a new podcast that you'll enjoy listening to too. It's a really funny podcast. I think you will enjoy it. So as soon as I get, we get the release date on it, I'll let you all know. But let's get started with our episode for today. It happened in 1999 in Chapel Hill, Texas, which is a little suburb right outside of Tyler, Texas, in the eastern part of Texas. It happened Christmas morning, and the whole community was shocked. So let's get to it. Steve and Carla Barron were good, kind people. Why would anyone want to murder them while they slept in their beds on Christmas morning, 1999? That's what police, family, and friends wanted to know after Carla's mother, Margaret Toner, called 911 Christmas morning when her granddaughter, Stephanie, showed up at her door. Police immediately sent help to the home in Chapel Hill, a suburb of Tyler, like we said. When the police arrived, the back door was standing wide open, but there didn't appear to be any forced entry into the house. As police walked through the home, everything seemed to be neat and orderly. There was no sign of the struggle, and it did not look like anything had been taken. There was one thing that caught them off guard. There wasn't a single Christmas decoration in the house. No tree, no presents, nothing. That, though, was quickly explained by friends and family when they informed police that the Barons were Jehovah's Witness and they did not celebrate Christmas. I'm not Jehovah's Witness, so, but I went to school with some kiddos who were, and I was always curious about that because to the best of my understanding, and I'll admit, I don't know a lot about the Jehovah's Witness religion. I do know that you don't celebrate holidays and it is very strict about following the Bible, but I am curious about not following or not celebrating Christmas in any form or fashion because what little knowledge I have, I thought that Jehovah's Witnesses do believe in Jesus and follow the Bible. So someone out there, if you're Jehovah's Witness or you know more about the religion, reach out to me. Let me know more. Um, I'm just curious. And you know what? That's on me for not doing more reading. but give me a heads up. Give me more info. Officers walked into Carla and Steve Barron's bedroom and found the couple lying in their bed. They both had been shot. Carla was lying on her back. She had been shot in the face under her left eye and in the left arm at close range. It looked probably to be about two to three feet was what I read in most of the reports. And it also looked like she had been sleeping. She was lying under the covers, on her back, like I said. 
there didn't it didn't seem to be like she even moved. So it looked like she never woke up at all. Now, Steve, on the other hand, was slumped half off the bed. His head was leaning against the bed with one leg sticking out on the floor. Police noticed that he had three loaded handguns under the bed. They assumed that he was reaching for one when he was shot. It looked like to police that the shooter had probably shot across Carla when they shot Steve. He had been shot in the back of the neck. The shooter had also fired a fourth round and that shot hit the headboard behind Steve. Police began to search the couple's room. They were surprised to see that Steve's wallet was lying on the dresser with over $400 in it. And no one had bothered to take the guns. All of Carla's jewelry was there. Everything was still there. The TV hadn't been taken. No other electronics had been taken from the house. And, you know, here's the thing. Besides the $400 in cash that was laying, was sitting right there in Steve's wallet, there was other cash in the house, plus Steve's other guns. So if someone broke in to be able to steal things to get money, why hadn't they taken anything? It was weird. Uh, In fact, everything was still in the house. Stephanie's room was messy, but it was nothing out of the ordinary for a teenager. She was 17. So, you know, most teenagers aren't the neatest and tidiest of people. The whole house was spotless. It, It made no sense to the police. Why didn't they take anything? Also, as they talked to neighbors and friends, the couple had no enemies whatsoever. They got along with their neighbors. They got along with people in their church. They got along with the community. Steve was well-liked at his job. So it made no sense for why anyone would break in and just murder them. The police searched outside the home as well. There were no footprints or tire tracks that indicated anyone had come or gone from the house. But what they did notice was that someone had tried to cut the phone lines, but they did not succeed. Now, Stephanie was at her grandmother, Margaret Toner's house. When she heard the gunshots, she hid in her closet until she thought it was safe. And then she ran out the back door to her grandmother's house to call 911. So they did not live right next door from each other. There was a field that separated the houses. So Stephanie ran out the back door to her grandmother's house. Now I found this kind of interesting, and I'm sure the police did too, that Stephanie's bedroom was at the front of the house next to the front door. So she really and truly believed that someone, an intruder, had been in her house shooting a gun in her house. Why, even though she thought it was clear because it was silent, Why did she run all the way through the house to the back door instead of just quietly sneaking out the front door, which was right next to her bedroom? That's an interesting thought. Now, Stephanie claimed that it was because she was just so upset and so scared that she did what was natural to her. And maybe so. You know, your adrenaline's pumping. You do what you know. But... You would think maybe she'd want to go to the closest door. Detective Rasco decided that it was time he head over to see Stephanie Barron at 
the toner house to see what he could find out from the 17-year-old girl. When he arrived, he first felt very sorry for Stephanie. He said that she was young. She's 17. Her parents had been murdered. And on top of that, she looked even younger for her age. He said she only looked about 12. Plus, she was tiny. She only stood about 4 foot 10. So that gave you the impression that she was younger even than her 17 years. He said it was obvious that she had been crying. And when Detective Rasco told Stephanie that both of her parents were gone, she began to sob hysterically. Now, of course, all of this sounds like a typical reaction for a 17-year-old girl when she thinks her parents have been murdered. She told Detective Rasco that she'd woken up to the sound of gunshots. She said she heard four of them. Stephanie said that she ran to her closet and hid until there was no more noise. She said she sat for quite a few minutes and just listened to complete silence. Then she got up her nerve and ran out the back door straight to her grandparents' house. Stephanie told Detective Rasco that she never even went into her parents' room to look at them. While Detective Rasco was at the toner home, the officers who were still at the Baron home called to let Detective Rasco know they had found something very interesting in Stephanie's room. Stuffed in her laundry basket was a 38 caliber revolver. It had been fired recently. In fact, so recently that you could still smell the gunpowder. It had four empty shells in it with one shot left. It had a small piece of what appeared to be a part of a latex glove stuck to it, and it was wrapped in a bloody sweatshirt. As police continued to look through the laundry basket, they also found a laser sight that had fallen off the gun. Hmm, how would that have gotten into Stephanie's laundry basket if she had been hiding in her closet? Was that Stephanie's gun? That seemed like an odd place to keep your gun if you wanted it for protection. Wouldn't you probably keep it like, you know, on your bedside table or even under the bed like her dad? Had the killer still been in the house when Stephanie ran out? But if they were, why were they hiding? As far as they knew, they'd killed two people, and they didn't know Stephanie was at home. If they did know Stephanie was there, why didn't they just shoot her too instead of letting her get away? They decided that they should spend a little bit more time in Stephanie's room to see if they could find anything else that might give them a few more clues about where this gun came from, why it was wrapped up in her closet where supposedly she was hiding, and if there were any other clues that might help them. On the door frame, police noticed I Heart D written in black marker. Then they also noticed some pictures tacked up on the door. All of them showed pictures of teenage boys throwing gang signs in the pictures. Every single one of them. It was like six or seven tacked to the door. And Stephanie was in them also, standing with them. So it already looked like she ran with a rough crowd. Now that interested investigators right away because according to detective rasco he actually the last three crimes he'd investigated had to do with gangs that were in chapel hill the investigators went over to the house and told stephanie that they were going to do a gunpowder residue test on her well she jumped up from the table ran to the bathroom closed the door and it sounded to officers like she might be throwing up. Now, you know, they didn't think a lot about it, but then she did turn the water on, 
which they thought, well, maybe she's washing her face. But when she came back, they did the gun residue test on her and it came back negative. So now they really assumed she was in there vigorously washing her hands while she was pretending to throw up because she was worried that, well, she tests positive. So even though the gun residue test came back negative, they were able to find a match on the serial number on the gun. But here's the thing. The gun didn't belong to Stephanie or it wasn't registered to Stephanie or anyone in her family. It was registered to a woman named Beth Little. Detective Rasco was confused. I mean, after all, Stephanie's father was a gun owner. It wasn't a big surprise that she might have a gun other than the fact that it was stuffed in her laundry hamper. But why in the world did Stephanie have a gun that was registered to some woman that had no connection to Stephanie's family? And who was this lady? So Detective Rasco called Beth Little. She told him that the gun had been lost after her house had burnt down. Beth told Detective Rasco that she had been out of town on vacation and that her home had caught on fire when the TV shorted out. She just assumed that it had been lost in the fire and never recovered. Things were starting to get very interesting. Here we have a gun that's been missing from a home that burnt down, and now it's linked to a double homicide. Hmm. Now, to make matters worse, when Detective Rasco started looking into the house fire, even though it was declared an accident, an accidental fire, The fire had spread from Beth Little's home to the house next door where it killed a young mother and her three-year-old daughter. And I listened to the 911 call. It's heartbreaking, y'all. The woman is in obvious distress. You can hear the um, smoke alarm going off in the background. You can hear the little girl crying. And she says, we're trapped inside. We can't get out. And even though the firemen made it to the house of Shelly Ray Haynes, they took him to the hospital. Both she and her daughter later died of smoke inhalation. It was just awful. So Detective Rasco decided that it was time for him to get Stephanie down to the police station for an actual formal interview. They spoke for two and a half hours. He started out by asking Stephanie how things were going at school. Stephanie had been an honor roll student. She made all A's and B's, but she informed him that she quit school to help her mother out at home. Now, I've read two different accounts of this. Some of the accounts said that Stephanie had dropped out of school and no one in her family knew she had. And then others said that since her father worked out of town all the time because he worked for a construction company and had to travel a lot, that he asked her to drop out of school to help take care of her mother. You see, her mother had had a brain tumor and they removed the tumor and she was cancer free, but she had had a small stroke in the process of the operation. Well, now she had trouble walking. She had to use a cane and she also suffered from debilitating migraines and she was taking lots of medication because of this. So according to Stephanie, Steve Barron had asked her to drop out of school to help her mother out. I don't know if I really believe that. I do believe that.
Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Her father expected her to stay at home in the evenings and help her mother out around the house. But I don't really think that he probably expected her to drop out of school and get a GED and just throw her future away. I feel like there were probably other people that were around who might could help her mother. After all, Carla Barron's mother, Margaret Toner, lived right next door. Well, not right next door, but right across the field. She was close by. And by all accounts, it sounded like they had a lot of friends and family. So I really believe more of the accounts that said that the family had no idea that Stephanie was skipping school. Of course, she did not stay at home to help her mother because she was spending all of her free time with Denario Jones, the boy who was the teenage gang member that was in all of the pictures in her bedroom. Now, of course, Stephanie's family did not approve of this relationship. I mean, I can't imagine why they did not approve. I hope you catch the sarcasm there. Uh, Stephanie said that her father, Steve, did not approve of this relationship because she didn't believe, he, sorry, did not believe in interracial dating. You see, Denario Jones was an African-American boy. I don't know if that's true or not because Stephanie's the only person who said that, but I can guarantee you that African-American or not, no one wants their daughter hanging out with a gang member who's been in trouble with the law. And I think that was the main thing. Supposedly, Stephanie was allowed to have Denario Jones over to the house one time, and after that, her dad said no more once they met him. Well, you know how that is. When a teenage girl thinks she's in love, her brain doesn't work very well. And of course, her parents did not approve, so she thought that she knew better than they did. And so she started sneaking around behind their backs. She spent every weekend that she could with Denario Jones and also was seeing him during the day when she was supposed to be at school. Now, Stephanie told Detect Detective Rasco that she was in love with Denario and that they planned to get married and have kids and spend all of their time together. Now, I highly doubt that that is what Denario was interested in. He does not sound like the kind of guy that wanted to settle down and have a family. Just saying. So police decided that it was time that they start looking into Denario Jones also. And sure enough, yes, he had a criminal record. In fact, he'd been arrested several times. He was no saint. In fact, he was a burglar. And that was how Denario Jones made his living, was by breaking into homes and robbing people. And yes, he was a full-fledged gang member. So, Denario was not a Boy Scout, a saint, or 
anyone that you would want your daughter to be spending a lot of time with. While Detective Rasco was poking around about Denario Jones, he received a phone call from a guy that said he had information about the Baron murder. Now, the guy asked Detective Rasco if he knew about a house fire that had happened back in October of 1999. And Detective Rasco told the guy, yes, that he did know about that fire and that he also knew that the house next door had burned down too. Well, the guy told Detective Rasco that Denario Jones was the person who broke into that house and set it on fire. He told Detective Jones that Denario knew that the woman was out of town, so he decided he was going to break into the house, rob it, and then he decided that he would set it on fire to cover his tracks. Now, the fire had originally been ruled an accident, but Detective Rasco went to the fire marshal after he found all this out and let him know what this young man had told him. So a new investigation was opened, and of course, they soon realized that the fire was no accident. Remember, Beth Little thought that her house had caught on fire when her TV shorted out. So up till now, they thought that this house fire was an accident and the death of Shelly Ray Haynes and her daughter had been a horrible, horrible accident. When in fact, Denario had set that fire to cover his tracks. So, I mean, what does this say about this guy? Stephanie Barron may have at one point been a sweet, innocent young girl, but you know that old saying, you lay down with dogs, you get up with fleas. And she had them all over her. Well, this also, of course, meant that Denario Jones was responsible for the deaths of Shelley Ray Haynes and her daughter. So police were real interested in talking to him now. So they went to Chapel Hill High School and picked Denario Jones up. As you can imagine, he did not have a good attitude. He did not want to speak to police. And at first he was very sullen and wouldn't answer anything. Now police started off by asking him about Steve and Carla Barron's murder. And Denario Jones told them that he didn't have anything to do with their murder and didn't know anything about it. Well, police did a check on phone records, and the phone records did in fact prove that Denario was at his mother's home all of Christmas Eve and early Christmas morning, just like he said he was. There were calls to prove that he was there. So that cleared him. But then they went on to ask him about a house fire that happened back in October of 1999 that burned down Beth Little's home. Now, Denario confessed that he burglarized the house, and he even said that he set the house on fire to cover his tracks. What he didn't know was that the fire had spread next door and killed two people. When detectives told him that, he became real cooperative about what he knew about the murder of the Barons. Because now, Denario knew that he was in a whole heap of trouble himself. So I'm sure he was hoping that if he became cooperative about what he knew about Stephanie, then maybe they'd go a little easy on him. Denary told them that he had, in fact, stolen the gun from Beth Little's home and that Stephanie met him later on that night because she was going to help him sell all of the things that he had stolen from the home. But Stephanie asked if he could, if he would let her keep the gun and 
he said yes, she could have it. Well, it was a 38 revolver. It was the exact same gun that Stephanie used to kill her mother and father. Denario Jones was charged with two counts of murder and arson. Stephanie's story was falling apart left and right all around her. Now, police were pretty sure that she was responsible for her parents' murder, but they needed more proof, so they had to keep digging. When they, so they ended up going back to Chapel Hill High School to talk to her friends. When they spoke to her friends at school, the friends said that over the past year, Stephanie had really changed, that she had lost touch with her original friend group, that she really no longer spoke to them, and she had drifted away from them. They said that she'd become very rebellious and that her behavior had become very erratic also. The former honor student had started skipping school. She was drinking during the day and she had found this rougher crowd to hang out with. The girls said that you didn't mess with Stephanie. In fact, since she'd gotten the gun from Denario, she liked to use it to threaten people. She, if she didn't like something, she didn't like something that people did, she would tell them she was gonna shoot them. And to get that point across, she would even go so far as to pull the gun out and point it at the person that she was talking to. So by this time, people were really kind of scared of her. They didn't know what to expect. And her father was real unhappy with her. She was doing nothing to help her mother at home at all. She was sneaking out of the house. And so there was a lot of tension in the Baron household. To really add to everything else, Stephanie then got arrested for forging checks. She stole a parent's checkbook and forged their signature so that she could buy Denario Jones a birthday present. Well, instead of bailing Stephanie out of jail, her father, Steve, decided that he would let her spend the night in jail. He was hoping that maybe a night in jail would help her see the path she was headed down. Instead, this made Stephanie even more mad at her parents. She thought that they should have stood behind her and bailed her out. So the animosity between Stephanie and her parents only grew. Things were getting bad. Besides letting her spend the night in jail, they grounded her. She was not allowed to go anywhere but to work and then straight home. No more going out with friends. No more talking on the phone. They closed her checking account and they took her truck away from her. It was only allowed to be used to drive to work, to school, and home. Police arrested Stephanie for capital murder. While she was awaiting trial, while she was in jail awaiting trial, the guards searched Stephanie and found stuffed inside her bra a handwritten note that said, I woke up around 2 a.m. and got dressed. I wore latex gloves and held the gun the whole time. I walked into my parents' bedroom at 4.04 a.m. I held the gun up and pushed the infrared on. I positioned the gun on my dad and held it until the clock read 4.08. I closed my eyes and pulled the trigger and shot him in the back of the neck. Then I held it to my mom and shot her in the face. Then the infrared fell off. I saw my dad stumbling around. Then I was just shooting. The note then went on to say she went back to her room, changed clothes, and stuffed the gun, the sweatshirt, and the laser sight into her hamper. After that, she ran over to her grandmother's house and called 911. 
When investigators asked her about this note, she said it was a fake. She said that she found it in her cell under her mattress and that she had stuck it in her bra to take it to her attorneys to show them that someone was trying to frame her. She claimed that De Niro's ex-girlfriend's sister-in-law was the one who had really written it. Now, detectives still are really kind of having a hard time, even after everything, truly believing that this 17-year-old girl shot and killed her parents in cold blood. So they made sure to have the note analyzed, and it was confirmed that the note was not written in Stephanie's handwriting. So the investigators kept digging. They questioned the other inmate, and she said that she had written the note, but she wrote it because Stephanie told her that she wanted her to. She told this girl to copy the note so that it wouldn't be written in her own handwriting. I mean, that's some 17-year-old thinking if I ever heard of it. What about y'all? So, the girl was, but then, of course, they went back and double-checked. Guess what? The girl was probably telling the truth that she had just copied it because at the time of the murder, the girl had been in jail. So that cleared her. So she really did probably just copy it because Stephanie had this harebrained scheme that somehow that was going to get her out of trouble if the note wasn't in her handwriting. But here's the deal. The note contained details that only the killer would know. Things like an infrared laser was used and that it fell off. Also, that Steve Barron was killed first. So it was pretty obvious to everyone that Stephanie murdered her parents. Well, of course, also when this note came out, her defense attorneys uh, kind of like flew into a frenzy. They pulled her to the side, had a big huddle with her. And on October 4th, 2000, Stephanie decided to plead guilty and avoid a trial so that she would not have to face the death penalty. So there was no trial and she accepted a sentence of 75 years in prison. Now, during her sentencing, the judge looked at her and said, your grandparents will likely have died when you're released from prison. You're not going to have anyone for you when you get out. May God have mercy on your soul. Well, Stephanie immediately broke down into sobs as they led her away, led her out of the courtroom. And she never did give a reason for why she murdered her parents. I mean, everyone believes she did because she was young and dumb and thought this was the way to be with her boyfriend. Now, also, authorities believe that it's because she wanted to collect her parents' life insurance money because in her deluded little mind, she thought that she and Denario then could be together forever and use that money. Denario Jones himself was sentenced to 70 years in prison for the murders of Shelley Ray Haynes and her daughter and for arson. Now, while she's been in jail, Stephanie married a man who's quite a bit older than her, and his name is Steve Roloff. He's worked very, he fully believes that she's innocent, and he's worked really hard to get her out of jail. He contends that Stephanie was framed by a family member who he himself wanted to get the insurance money for the Baron's murder. Now, there does not seem to be any evidence that this is true, and I really don't think Stephanie's innocent. I did, however, find a true crime blog that was discussing Stephanie's case 
where Steve wrote in in the comments and argues with everyone about Stephanie's innocence. Anyone who says that Stephanie is guilty and he's in prison for life, he says, no, you don't know what you're talking about. And he tells her story over and over again. And at one point, some other guy chimes into the comment section and says that he's also been exchanging letters with Stephanie and sends her money and that she claims to love him. Well, Steve is offended and how dare you ever say anything that would lead you to think that Stephanie was less than a wonderful, wonderful girl. But then he later writes back in the comment section and apologizes to this guy and says that Stephanie has admitted her infidelity and he does not know if their, if their marriage is going to be able to last. I don't know if any of that was real or if it was just people fooling around, but it was very entertaining. So I'll link the blog in the resource notes for the show. Now, back to the real story. I do think Stephanie was 17. She was very immature and could only think about what she wanted at the time. I don't think she ever really thought about the consequences of her actions and what it would really mean that if she murdered her family. I watched an interview that Stephanie did from jail. Again, she never admitted to anything, but she did say that her poor decisions led to her parents' murder. She also said that she missed her mother every day. She never once, though, mentioned missing her father. I thought that was interesting, especially since it sounded like he was really dis the disciplinarian in the family and the one who enforced the rules at home. So maybe I'm reading too much into that, but you would think that she might at least say that she missed her father. Stephanie Barron will be eligible for parole in December of 2029. And that's not that far off. What do y'all think? Innocent or guilty? Let me know. Thanks for listening today. I hope you enjoyed it. If you would like to let me know your thoughts about whether you think she's innocent or not, or like I said, someone who is Jehovah's Witness or knows more about the religion, kind of give me a little more insight into it. I'd love to hear about it from either opinion. So you can find me like always on Instagram at Texas True Crime Pod. You can find me on Facebook at Texas True Crime, or you can send me an email at Texas True Crime Podcast at gmail.com. Please remember if you like what you hear, share the podcast with a friend, leave a five-star review. When you do that, it helps my podcast in the search. It pops up quicker than others. And uh, let me know what you think. Thanks for listening and I'll see you guys next week. Bye.